It was good to find that we had things to talk about other than the baby. Did we? Welcome to Writing in Real Life, a podcast about writing, parenthood, publishing, and marriage. I'm Morgan Baden. With me is my husband and co-host, Barry Liga. Hello. Hi. So, this has been a really interesting week. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely. It was my first week, my first full week back at work. Right. Working, you know, standard, Monday through Friday, nine to five hours. Yeah, working for the man. Basically. Clifford. His name is Clifford the Big Red Dog. His name is Clifford the Big Red Dog, actually. <laughs> he yeah. is the man. A couple of things. First is, I forgot how long a, a standard work week can feel. <laughs> yeah, I actually meant to ask you about this. I didn't get the chance because there was a little drama towards the end of the week. Right. Which I'm sure we'll talk about. But, yeah, what was that like going <laughs> for a full week? And people out there are like, she had to work a full week all oh, poor, poor girl. Well, but, you know. I mean, it's been what? It's six been, months since yeah, I've, since, since I've worked a full week of work. Yeah, since yeah. early October. Yeah. So, um, well, here's, here's an example that illustrates how it was Tuesday. I was in a staff meeting and my boss said, oh, it's been a long week <laughs> and everyone agreed. And yeah. I looked around the room and said, hey, guys, it's only Tuesday. <laughs> so it, I feel like it's one of those weeks that felt long for everyone. But, yeah, it was really – honestly, it was strange for me because, yeah. um, you know, we were we were both recovering from illnesses. I, I was sick for about three weeks, basically, off and on, but mostly on. And, um, and I guess I had forgotten how much I depended on my two days off a week right. when I was working the part-time schedule because – not that I can sleep in because Leia gets up pretty early, but uh, but I did at least have the opportunity to nap once throughout sure. the day, and uh, and I did not obviously this week at work. So um, I really found myself by Wednesday night just being like, just get through the day, Morgan. Just get through tomorrow, and then you just have one more day after that, and then right. it's the weekend. You know, so it it became this countdown, which is really a shame, but. I am feeling a lot better now, so I'm sure next week will be better. And also, I'm sure it's just you you get reused to it, of course. Right. I remember working retail jobs, and the first day back during summer, during my summer retail job, the first few days, my feet would ache at the end of the day because uh, I wasn't used to standing up all day. But then once you adjust, you're fine. I'm sure so, it's like going back to school. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. You know, you have yeah. summer break, and then you go back to school, and that those first few days are just miserable yeah. and awful and terrible, and then... You get used to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So, so that was mine. How was yours? Because this was your first full this week. This was my first full doing week. Doing the stay-at-home dad as, thing. As Mr. Mom. <laughs> and, yeah, it was intense, you know, because uh, I, you know, previously I had only ever had two days in a row where I was with her before I had you home to help out. Yeah. At one time there was three days in a row where you changed your schedule a little bit, but that was the most that I'd had. And this time it was five freaking days in a row of baby. And I'm a few days behind you in terms of recovering from this illness. You got sick first. Uh I got sick second. So you're pretty much feeling well. I'm, I'm straggling behind a little bit by a few days. So, you know, it was, it was a little difficult because I wasn't feeling a hundred percent. She doesn't know. And she, she did know she wouldn't care if I was feeling a hundred percent. She just wants what she wants and needs what she needs. And it, it was fine up until Thursday. And Thursday, she just decided not to nap at all that day. Yeah. She just did not nap. And then on, on Friday, she napped a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, and then today, Saturday, we're recording this Saturday, she napped a tiny, tiny bit because we forced her to. Yeah. 
And that was it. And, you know, we have sort of noticed that she goes through these, these periods of time where her naps fall apart. And it usually lasts a week to a week and a half. Mm-hmm. So at least we know that now. Yeah. And they seem to coincide with, you know, sort of a developmental cycle right. for her where she's figuring out some new things. And so she just doesn't have time to nap. Yeah. She's too busy. Which is just great for us. Because, <laughs> you know, what I came to realize was I really, I need those naps. Yeah. It, it's not that I nap while she's napping because I'm, I'm not in a headspace yet where I feel like I can do that. Well, you're not a napper anyway. I'm not much of a napper anyway, but. I am a champion You napper. are. You are. You get the gold medal in, in napping. I, I wish I were a napper. Yeah. That would be great. So it's not that, that I needed those, her naps so that I could nap, but I just needed the downtime where I could sort of redirect my mental energy and, and my emotional energy and just sit down and do a crossword puzzle yeah, or eat lunch, yeah. something like that without worrying about her, knowing she's safe and she's sleeping in her crib and mm-hmm. she's fine. And when I went two days in a row without that, it's just, it's rough. It's It frazzles you. I mean, it was, you know, you came home Friday and I was just sort of a shell. I was, you know, just out of it. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's part of parenthood, but it it doesn't make it any better. Yeah. I I was just reading a blog post. It's funny that this happened this week because, um, uh, a, a woman who has twins who are three, um, so, you know, Barry, you're all about that right now. Oh, the twins. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but she, you know, she's stayed home mom with them and she just wrote a blog post. Um, and we'll link to it in show notes. Basically it was her having a meltdown after her twins refused to nap one day. And the blog post is her exploring that she hadn't quite realized how much she needed yeah. their naps. Yeah. You know, they need it obviously, but but, the, you know, babies take all the sleep they need from this world. So if they don't get it one day, that's fine um, for them. But but it was her sort of exploring what happens to her when she doesn't get right. that time off. Right. And it sounds like she tends to use her naps, their nap, for sitting down and having a cup of tea and petting her cat and reading a chapter in a book and doing all these things that help her get back into her headspace and, and give her the downtime. Right. So, you know, I, obviously it's not unusual, but it's a... I, I sympathize. Obviously, yeah. today was a, a terrible napping day for the baby. So, right. um, so it's tough. You, you you come to rely on on those those naps. Yeah, like you said. I mean, you know, we don't have a cat, but if we did, <laughs> that's when I would pet the cat. Yeah, and yeah, so it becomes very difficult to. Yeah. You, you need those times to sort of recharge, because when the baby's awake, you got to be on. Right. You got to be taking care of the baby. Right. Uh, so you need those times where you can just sort of chill out. And it would be one thing if she just didn't take a nap. And said, I'm just not going to take a nap and just hung out. But no, she shows all signs of being tired, rubs her eyes, yawns, whines. Mm -hmm. So you go, you put her in the crib and five minutes later, she's screaming, get me the hell out of this crib. What did, why are you an idiot? Why did you put me in this crib? I don't know what's wrong with you. What made you think I wanted to be in the crib? Yeah. What possibly gave you the impression that this is what I wanted? Uh, the fact that you were showing all the sleep signs, I don't know. And then you'll take her out of the crib and, and try to calm her down. And in the process of calming her down, she will start to show sleep signs again. And you think, oh, okay, we're, yeah. we're back here again. And it just becomes this endless cycle of trying to put her down and she refuses to go down. And that's just maddening. So, yeah. If only babies could talk, all of our problems would be solved. You know, if babies just, I'm sorry to say this, this may offend some people, but babies, they're just not that bright. <laughs> and if they would just like bring their intellectual game up a little bit. Just a little bit. I'll be better off. Th- things would be a lot better off, yeah. So tonight was exciting, though, because, yes. uh, you know, it was one of those things where, again, it's it's been sort of a rough week. 
And out of the blue yesterday, my twin sister texted and said, hey, I don't have any plans Saturday night. Why don't I come over after the baby goes to sleep and you and Barry go out? And this is one of the few cases where I'm glad you have a twin. <laughs> I, I, am put, I put aside my animosity towards the twin menace <laughs> to accept your sister's kind offer. So she did. She came over and you and I just got back from going out to dinner. It was crazy. We went out to dinner and, and I think we did a pretty good job not talking about the baby. I think so too. You know, I was a little frazzled when we first sat down right. for various baby reasons. Right. And, um, and I had to tell myself. Self, stop thinking about the baby. She is fine. We were literally, listeners, half a block away from the apartment. Literally half a block away. Like, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. I'm not using literally in the figuratively sense. I mean, between our apartment and the restaurant is a distance of half a block. <laughs> but it was nice. It was nice to sit down and um, have some sangria and, and just be us again. Yeah. 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 So, So that was fun. It was good to find that we had things to talk about other than the baby. Did we? We did. We didn't talk about no, the baby right. while I'm we were kidding. there. We didn't I'm talk kidding. about the baby at all. It was great. Yeah. And and the food was phenomenal. It was pretty good. Yeah. The dessert was kind of ridiculous. <laughs> we actually got dessert. It was a Nutella pizza and it was awesome. I don't even like Nutella and it was amazing. You don't like Nutella? I mean, it's fine. Whatever. But it was really good. Wow. You know. I, it's like I don't know who you are. No. You know how I go. Okay. So I want to jump in with some work stuff. Because Barry needs to talk about this this week. There's an exciting giveaway. Ah, the giveaway. Yes. So, yeah, we, we interrupt this show for this commercial <laughs> interruption. Uh, you know, I've got a book coming out in August called After the Red Rain that I wrote in collaboration with Rob DeFranco and Peter Facinelli. And I have five galley copies, advanced reading copies of this book that have been signed by all three of us. Now, you probably don't care about my signature or Rob's signature, but you probably care about Peter Facinelli's signature. So if you are listening and if you would like one of these copies, then please go to, here's how you do it. Please go to our website, writinginreallife.com. And this is episode 12 that you're listening to. Click on episode 12 and then leave a comment on episode 12. Now, please make sure when you do this, there are a bunch of options for how you can leave a comment. You want to make sure that you don't include your email address in the comment, but there will be a box for your email address, and it will say optional. If you would like to win this prize, it's not optional. It's mandatory. you got to put your email address in that box so that I can get in touch with you if you're the one who wins. So leave a comment. Tell me why you would like to get this advanced copy of the book you have through the end of the month. Uh, by midnight at the end of the month, that is when this contest will close, and I will go through all of the entries and choose one, and some lucky person will win. Yay. And we'll get a uh, we'll get this signed copy of the book. Yay. So there you go. Simple as that. Great. Again, episode 12, writinginreallife.com. Leave a comment. It's the first official writing in real life giveaway. It is. It's a milestone. It is. It's epi- you know, we've had a dozen episodes now. We've got to shake things Aww, up a little nice. bit. So this yeah. is what we're doing. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of... Let's do a quick project update. Sure. So I can start because mine's really easy, which is, ha, 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 I have no update. I did nothing this week related to my book. Um, And again, hashtag excuses, but I was recovering and went back to work full time and... Just had so it just didn't on. happen. Yeah, yeah sure. But sure. how about you? I and know you made some progress. Yeah, I made some progress. I broke fifteen thousand words. Actually, I think I broke sixteen thousand words nice. on the on the manuscript. And more importantly, I sort of organized everything. Okay. As I've said before, 
the way I was working on this book, since I was just grabbing time whenever I could, I was writing things just sort of crazily out of order. And, you know, in some cases, stopping scenes in the middle of sentences just because that's when I had to get up and, and go do something for the baby. And so everything was chaotic. It was just all over the place. So I sat down and I organized everything sort of in a rough plot order and took a bunch of notes on, okay, here's how I connect this piece to this piece and that sort of thing. And then, yeah, the past several days I've been writing uh, as much as I can. I have a goal for myself of doing 500 words a day during the week. Which, 500 sounds like a big number, but it's not. If you think of it, 500 words is roughly two pages. Mm. It's not a huge amount of writing, especially for a professional writer. Uh, On the weekends, I am doing 1,000 words a day, which is four pages. But I feel like this is a a sustainable goal. I think it's really important when you're doing something like this, if I can digress for a moment, to set goals that you can meet. Because otherwise, you're going to get depressed and you're going to get frustrated and you're going to get angry at yourself for not meeting your goals. So you're the one setting the goals. Nobody else is setting them for Mm. you. Make them goals you can meet. It doesn't necessarily mean make them easy, but make make them achievable. Make Mm -hmm. it something that you can accomplish. And you will feel good about having accomplished it. I mean, I feel like a thousand words a day is, is pretty weak compared to what I used to do, but that's the goal I set for myself and I meet it and I feel good about that. Yeah. So let's talk about goals for a second because you and I were talking about this at dinner. Yeah. So I find that it's really easy to set achievable goals when you're first writing a book because you can do it by word count. So it's, I'm, my goal is X amount of words per week or per day or per month, whatever. I'm struggling right now because I want to set goals for my progress in this revision, but they can't be word count goals because I'm not writing new stuff. Um, you know, I'm trying that's not all you're doing. Exactly. Yeah. I am writing some new stuff, but, uh, but I'm not just sitting there trying to move forward. I'm, I'm going through things and cutting a lot and rewriting a lot and whatnot. So what are some ways that I can set goals? What, what kinds of goals can I set that are manageable and also make sense? I have been thinking about this since dinner because we started to talk about Uh it. And then you said, wait, we should talk about this on the podcast, (laughs) save this for the podcast. So I've been thinking about this. And one of the things that you said at dinner was, well, you can't even set a page count goal because you might have one page that could take you, you know, three three days to to do because it's a really complicated, important bit. Yeah. And I agreed with you and we talked about it a little bit and then you said, let's talk about it on the podcast. But I've been thinking about it and I realized I do sort of set page count goals for myself when I revise. Okay. Now, first of all, people need to understand I don't like revising. I've talked about this before, but I, I have to do it. And I have a method that I use, and I actually blogged about it. I'll put link to the blog in the show notes if people are curious. But you know what you can do? Here, here's what I think you should do with revision. You know, you, you look at the manuscript pages that you have with your notes, and you say, okay, how much work is this? And it's, this feels sort of nebulous, but you have an idea of how difficult something is and how long it will take you. And you look at it and you say, okay, I'm looking at 50 pages here that really is just a matter of fixing typos and tweaking some dialogue here and there and some stuff like that. I can, I think this amount of work is something I can do tomorrow night. So you tell yourself, I'm going to do these 50 pages tomorrow night. Sometimes you look at a page and you go, Oh my God, these 10 pages, this is the crux of the problem. I need to completely rewrite these and rethink them totally. And that's going to cause ripple effects through the rest of the manuscript that I have to think about. So maybe you say to yourself, those 10 pages, I'm going to give myself a week. Okay. Okay. But you look at it in chunks. You, you go through your notes 
and you go through the manuscript and you say, and you, I would do it in order ideally, because then it's easier to keep in your mind. So start at page one and end at page, whatever, and say to yourself as you're flipping through, okay, these 25 pages don't look very difficult. I finish that tomorrow night, no matter what. Okay. And oh my God, but the following five pages are a disaster. That's going to take I'll me give, a month. I'll give uh-huh. myself a complete night for five pages Yeah, or whatever it is. You know, when I'm revising, that's sort of what I do. I go ahead and I say, all right, I'm going to take these first hundred pages and try to get them done, you know, over these two days. Yeah. But if I know, for example, that I'm coming up on something that's very complicated, mm-hmm. I will break that out. You know, I'll stop. You know, if, if I have a goal of doing a hundred pages, but I know that on page 100, something really difficult starts, I will say, okay, I'm going to do the first 99 then because they're easy and I'll knock that out fast. Yeah. And then I'll start with page 100 and I'll do page 100 to 110 because that's really difficult. And I'll take three days on those 10 pages if that's what it takes Mm -hmm. and then move on to the next thing. So I really think it's a case of go through what you have and separate it into chunks. You know, say to yourself, okay, I've got two hours at night. How many, how much of this can I get done in two hours and put that aside? And that's what you do the next night and then keep doing that. So let's say you're fixing chapter five and you need to do three things to chapter five. You need to, um, change up the plot point, a plot point in there so that something makes sense at the end. Right. Um, so there's actual like structural work you have to do in that chapter. Sure. You also think that you need to infuse some romantic tension in there. Okay. Um, to help build up a, a love triangle. Okay. And you also need to, I don't know, um, make some tweaks to a minor character in that chapter. Right. Okay. When you're revising, do you go through and make all three changes at once? Or do you go through that chapter three separate times with an eye towards each of those objectives? I try to do it all at once. Okay. Because my feeling is it's all interrelated. Yeah. You know, you just listed three things that seem separate, but they're not. Yeah. Your love triangle is going to impact the plot. Your minor character hopefully is going to have something to do with the plot or the love triangle. Otherwise, what the hell is this person doing in the book? Uh Right. So I try to do it all at once because it's just easier that way than trying to keep in my head. Oh, wait, I need to go back and do this other thing too later. Again, that's why I do it in a linear fashion. That's why I start at page one and go all the way through to the end because that way you can see the ripples as you're creating them. You know, that way, if you change something in the plot in chapter five, and it has an effect on chapter six, you're moving on to chapter six next. Now, imagine if you changed something in the plot in chapter five, but didn't do the love triangle thing yet and got to chapter six and chapter six is fine plot wise, but the love triangle would have needed to be taken care of. Mm. Well, now you didn't set up the love triangle thing in chapter five yet. So you don't know what the hell you're doing in chapter six. Okay. You know? Yeah. So that's why I try to to do it all at once. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So really there's some guesswork involved because you really are guessing what your your work capabilities are as you go through and you're going to screw up sometimes and sometimes it's going to be too short sometimes too long but you'll get a sense of it that's what i think okay in terms of revision that was helpful i would love to have people you know other people who write tell us what they think and how they do it yeah. because again i don't like revising so i've sort of cobbled together my own system over the years but people there are people who god bless them love revising <laughs> maybe they have better strategies yeah Okay, so somewhat related to revision. Uh, this came up a few weeks ago, and then we got a question from Paul, our number one listener. Our number one fan. <laughs> 
You said something, Barry, about you were talking about revisions that you were doing based on editorial notes. Yeah. And you said something like... Even some of the things that my editor had suggested that I said to her, there's no way I can do those things. And she said, oh, that's fine. I just They were just thoughts. A couple of those things, as I was doing the revision, I thought, oh, wait, I can do that. <laughs> I, I actually can. That's really easy to do. And I, and I dropped those in. It's nice little gifts for her. So I hope she will appreciate that. <laughs> and so Paul wonders, and I'm wondering too, because I think it's a really interesting topic. How do you decide which edits to agree with and take on and which not to when it comes to editorial notes from your actual book editor? So I'm not talking about, you know, critique partners or you just doing revisions, but when your editor for a contracted book says you should do the following, what, what do you take and what don't you, and how do you make those decisions? Well, (laughs) you know, for, as with most things in my life, I have to tell a story to have this make a little bit of sense with my very first book. I will never forget. I got, I never got an editorial letter from my editor. She sent me her line edits. She sent back my manuscript to me with handwriting on it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. This is old school. This is kind of cool. Uh, with, with notes and suggestions and so on and so forth in the manuscript itself. And I think there was a cover letter with it that maybe had a couple of bullet points of things to consider. And this was my first book. Obviously I felt strongly about it. I feel strongly about everything. And I was in something of a tizzy because I didn't know how to react to this. I didn't know how to react to having somebody say to me, this, 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 this. Here's everything that here's, here's everything that, that, that you should consider changing. And well, that's interesting right there though. Well, hang on, but I'm yeah. going to get to that. Okay. So I thought about it and I took it very seriously that she wanted me to make these changes and I did not agree with a great deal of them. And <laughs> I wrote, <laughs> I, I guess I thought this is how you did things. I wrote her a very long email, pages and pages and pages. Wow. Every point of hers I disagreed <gasps> with explaining very politely why I disagreed and what I, and, and what I thought the correct you know, course of action was every single one. And I never heard back. (laughs) And at one point she did say to me, you know, I I said to her at one point, you know, I never heard back from you about that email. She was, she was very, I opened it and it just went on forever. And I said, no way. And I just (laughs) closed it. And so that told me right there, okay, that's not the best way to communicate with your editor. And, you know, I ended up not doing some of the things she suggested and I felt weird about that, but she never said anything about it. Yeah. You know, she never said, hey, you didn't do these things. And, or, you know, you're in trouble, young man. And what I realized were two things. First of all, it's my book. Yeah. You know, I was very fortunate. My first editor, Margaret Ramo, wonderful editor at Houghton Mifflin, said to me, he said, you know, I'm known as having a light touch. And she said to me, my job is not to tell you what the book is. My job is to help you make it the best book you want it to be. Mm-hmm. And I that really formed for me my opinion of what editors do. That's a great perspective. It is. It is. And she said to me many times, she said, when I tell you something I think is wrong or something that should be changed, consider that's one reader's opinion. It's what one reader thinks. Yeah. And that was very helpful to me because I really felt like if my editor says it, I have to do it. And I didn't want to do some of these things. Like I really strongly felt I shouldn't do them and I didn't want to. And it worked out fine. And the thing you jumped in on before where she said you should consider this, that that's the other thing. I don't think I've ever had an editor. I could be wrong. I don't think I've ever had an editor say, dear Barry, you have to do X, Y, or Z. Yeah. It has always been couched in terms like, have you considered 
blank. What do you think of this? Or I'm not sure about this. Why not this? And that gives you leeway to take a different approach to it. Because in a lot of cases, I think in a lot of cases, editors see something that doesn't work for them. And some editors will say, it doesn't work, take it out. And in some cases, it's not that what you did was bad or wrong. You just didn't explain it fully enough, or you didn't do it well enough that the editor goes, oh, I see what you're trying to do here. So to me, a really good editor is one who gives you the opportunity to try it again, and this time make it work. Mm -hmm. And there was an example in The Secret Sea that I don't want to give because it's a spoiler, but there was something that my editor said, I just really don't like this. It really bothers me. It's just so strange. I just don't, it's just weird and it doesn't seem appropriate. And I redid it a little bit. I tweaked it a little bit and she said, Barry, you know, I still just don't like this. It's just so strange and so off-putting. And the more we talked about it, the more I realized exactly what was bothering her about it. She had an impression that something I had written meant something completely different, that I was going for something totally different. And when I just tweaked a paragraph or two, it changed it entirely. And that second time I did it, she went, I see. Okay. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. And she never said, take it out. She just said, I don't like it. It bothers me. And that made me rethink it and think, okay, I know what I was thinking when I wrote it. Clearly it's not coming across. And rather than just excising it, Mm -hmm. Maybe I can make it come across the way I want it to, which that to me is the solution to the problem, not just removing it. It is funny though, the, the language that you say editors use, like, have you considered this? Or perhaps we should approach it this way. I I mean, that's a lang, that's the type of language that I and a lot of my colleagues use with, with each other Sure. in work emails, because, you know, um, sometimes it's a case of, well, yeah, I'm not really your boss, so I can't order you to do this. Right. <laughs> but it's certainly in all of our best interests for you to do it this way. So how can I phrase it just so, so that it makes it kind of sound like it's in your control, but really I'm telling you to do it this way. Well, and that's the editorial relationship too, because yeah. the editor isn't my boss. Right. And I'm not the editor's boss. Right. We We have a relationship of equals and we both have certain levels of power in this relationship. But, you know, my father in particular finds this a difficult thing, I think, to understand. He he often, you know, I'll write something, I'll tell him about something I've written, and he'll say, oh, your editor will let you do that? Uh, and I'll say, Dad, the editor doesn't let me do anything. I mean, they bought they bought the book. I mean, I can do, it's my book. Yeah. My name is the one on it. I can do whatever I want. Yeah. The only, I mean, really, the only thing they can do is say, we're not going to publish it. Right. You know, which is the nuclear option. Yeah. And so it behooves both parties in this relationship to find ways to talk to each other that do not involve absolutes and do not involve orders, like you say, because nobody's the boss and nobody is the employee. You're you're equals trying to make it the best book possible. And, and the way to do that is to work together, not to impose orders on each other. So your dad's impression of how editors and authors interact is making me laugh because it's making me think of all of these crazy media interpretations of what an author is oh sure and what what it's like to work in publishing i think you know in in my father's defense he's probably thinking when he hears the word editor he's thinking of sort of a newspaper type oh yeah where in that case the editor is Is the boss boss. and Uh is telling reporters no do it this way or i'll just change it for you right it's obviously it's a very different relationship 
in book publishing. Right, yeah. But, so that's probably what he's more familiar with and is thinking of. But it, it's one of those things where – and I think a lot of people don't understand that. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. The, the, the way it's presented in the, in the media – is hilariously wrong, which is funny because writers are the ones writing these stories, right. so they know what it's that really is like. So funny. I mean, it's just interesting that this came up now during this podcast because we talked about it at dinner. Two examples of the author sort of world, the world of authors um, that are depicted in the media that are totally wrong. Right. And one is Castle, the yeah. show. Ugh. Um And you mentioned that when it's when it aired, your mom said, "Oh, I watch this because it reminds me of you, and yeah. it must be what your day is like." And well, she didn't say this must be what your day is like, but it's just you know, she said it makes me think of you, which is probably more her just like. My son's of an author course. too, yeah, but yeah. It's, and I said to her, said, "Mom, that's not what it's like at right. all." Uh, yeah. And then yeah. the second one is we were talking about book launch parties, right? And I started thinking of the Sex in the City episode where Carrie Bradshaw has a book launch party for her nonfiction book. I think it's her collection of of essays, and it's this super swanky affair right. at a club, obviously open bar and and everything right. that her publisher threw for her and. I mean, it, I mean, it's adorable. You know, I'm sure that... that of course if, there are some of those. You know, J.K. Rowling had, you know, was coming out with another book and wanted a big book launch party. I'm sure her publisher would be happy to throw a black tie-only soiree for her. But for most authors, for those of us down in the trenches, it ain't like that. That's a damn shame. <laughs> that is. That is a damn shame because I'm always looking for an excuse to put on my tux. <laughs> so I think we should move into what we're reading now and or recommended reading. We can certainly do that. So let me start. Um, earlier this week, I forget which day, but it was the anniversary of the Triangle Shirtwaist fire. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which I think, obviously that was a very important event that led to a lot of um, a lot of changes to protect workers, including, you know, in Manhattan, doors have to push out right. uh, so that people inside can, can rush out easily right. should there be a fire. So I started thinking about, there's a, a book that I've read that I really like called Blythewood by Carol Goodman, although it might be written under her pen name, so I need to check on that. Uh, but anyway, but it starts with the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. Oh. And uh, and then obviously quickly, it, that's just used as the basis for something. Um, and even in the book, the, the fire becomes highly fictionalized and uh, sort of paranormal-esque. Um, but so I started thinking about that and it was, it was a really great book. Um, but overall, I just wanted to give a reading recommendation for any Carol Goodman book, essentially. Oh, wow. Um, one of my favorites is the Lake of Dead Languages. I love that title. Such an amazing title. That's an awesome Uh title. She's got really wonderful titles. Um, anyway, my, my twin sister and I are big fans of hers. I think, I think she's the one who first discovered her and we just pass her books back and forth and, um, and read them a lot. She's had several of them out. So anyway, Blythewood is her, I believe, first YA. And uh, and part two, Ravencliff, just came out. So I'm on my way to these, get that. These sound like Dungeons and Dragons adventures. <laughs> Blythewood and Ravencliff. Uh, yeah. I can't comment on that. But yeah, I I'll know. take your word for I it. Know. So anyway, so that's where I am right now. Is my reading recommendation is Carol Goodman. Okay. So I am reading something right now. I just started it recently. And I'm not really sure how I feel about it yet. And I don't want to give the name of the author or the name of the book, because this might be one of those cases, as we've talked about, where I end up putting this book down and, and not finishing it. Wow. And if that's the case, you know, I, I don't think authors should badmouth each other in public. So I don't want to put out there that I couldn't finish this person's book. I, I'm, I'm not sure. There's just, there's, I'm not that deep into it. And there's a couple of good things, but there's just things that are 
really just strange and making me wonder what this person was thinking. Yeah. So I want to give it a little more time and see if maybe those things fade into the background, if maybe they were just early page jitters, you know, and maybe it improves. So we'll see. I'll I'll report back next week as to whether I kept with it or not. All right. So there we go. Okay, well, that is it for us tonight. So thank you for listening, everyone. Don't forget, you can visit us online at writinginreallife.com. You'll find our show notes there. I think we have a ton of stuff to link to this week, so definitely take a look. Um, You'll find a contact form. So send us questions, comments, suggestions, whatever. Um, And most importantly, don't forget to subscribe to us in iTunes and rate us while you're there. It just takes a second. Uh, So we'll be back next week. Have a great week, everyone. And don't forget to leave a comment on episode 12 to win the After the Red Rain Galley signed by me and Rob and Peter Facinelli. Definitely. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Bye.